on the screen uh, behind me <clears throat> is a, a photo of a piece of tapestry. It's an image of a crown stitched and weaved in, in fine detail with threads of different colors adorned with gold and silver and fine pearls. In the right hands, it displays incredible workmanship. And some of the world's finest museums collect tapestries like this and display them as works of art, as masterpieces. I think this particular tapestry uh, is associated with Corey Tinboom. Now, <clears throat> the next image is the backside of the same tapestry. If you notice, the back side shows something of the image, right? It shows something of the image, but it's a jumbled mess. It's full of loose ends and frayed edges and knots. It looks like I did it. While the front side looks beautiful and finished, the back side looks ugly and tangled. We are meant, we are meant to see and admire the front side, not the back. But the truth is, you can't have the front without the back. This morning, we are beginning our study through the Old Testament book of Esther, where we see the creative handiwork of God's providence as He saves His people from sure destruction. And for our benefit... For our benefit, God takes us to the backside of His handiwork. Where we see the chaos and the jumbled lives and the knotted relationships 
and the mistakes made by a handful of people that God skillfully uses to accomplish His divine purpose. I mentioned God's providence to you. And I need to explain that because as we move through the book of Esther, God's providence is on full display. That word providence means to see before. It speaks to foresight. And when that word is applied to God, it takes on a much greater meaning because God not only looks ahead and sees our choices and our actions beforehand, whether they be good or bad, right or wrong, but somehow, some way, God weaves them all together like weaving a tapestry to carry out His perfect will, His masterpiece. Now, as you may know, in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned one single time. Which prompted some to question why the book of Esther is even included in the Bible. God is not mentioned. Not once. However, as we will see in our study over the next several weeks, just because God is not mentioned does not mean He is absent. Instead, in this story, God is sovereignly and silently working behind the scenes, weaving the choices and the actions of a few people with an invisible hand to accomplish a much greater purpose. The book of Esther belongs in the Bible. And the whole story speaks to the same truth found in Romans 8.28, where the Apostle Paul tells us, and we know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God gave us the story of Esther to remind us that even though We often only see 
what appears to be the backside of God's handiwork in this world, He is always present. He is ever faithful. And He is working for our good, whether we realize it or not. Even though On this side of heaven, we only tend to see the backside. God is creating a masterpiece. And one day, as promised, we will see it. Now, before we begin, I need to set the stage for this story of Esther with some history. I know you love history. Only day. (laughs) Okay. Many, many years before this story, civil war had broken out amongst God's people in the promised land which resulted in two divided kingdoms. The northern kingdom, referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, referred to as Judah. Neither kingdom was following God. Both fell into sin. And as a consequence, they were allowed by God to be taken into captivity. At first, the Assyrians took the people of Israel into captivity. And then, over a hundred years later, the Babylonians who were the new bullies on the block, pushed their way into the promised land. Destroyed the city of Jerusalem and their temple. And they took the people of Judah into captivity. For 70 long years the people of Judah were exiled to Babylon and held in captivity until the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians who were under the rule of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the king of the Persian Empire. An ancient Iranian empire. And he became sympathetic towards the Jewish people who had been in captivity for such a long time. And so he, Cyrus, permitted the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and their temple. 
over time, three groups of Jews made the journey back home to Judah to rebuild the city and their temple. But surprisingly, many of the Jews chose to remain. They seemed content to stay right where they were, to homestead in a foreign land, a land not their own. And it's with these people who remained in Persia that set the stage for this story. A story which probably occurred sometime around 483 B.C. Okay? So, if you have your Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Esther. And we will begin with chapter 1, verse 1. Esther 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to earn my keep today because i got to pronounce a lot of crazy names. Just be gracious towards me. Verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Meda, the the nobles and the princes of his providences being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for 180 days. Cyrus, who I previously mentioned, was the first king of Persia. But after he had come and gone, as well as a few others... It was his grandson, Ahasuerus, who became the reigning king of the Persian Empire. Now, your Bible, if you're using an NIV, your Bible may refer to this king as Xerxes. And that's simply what the Greeks called him. So we are still speaking about the same king here, okay? Who at the time, we are told, is in his winter palace located in the Persian city of Susa. Which today would be located in the southwestern region of Iran. Ahasuerus was a very powerful king. He referred to himself as the great king, the king of kings. 
And it was under his reign that the Persian Empire became the largest the world had ever seen. Stretching from modern-day Libya in Africa all the way over to Pakistan in Asia. Now, after three years on the throne, Jewish history tells us that Ahasuerus, here we go, Ahasuerus wanted to invade Greece out of revenge from a previous defeat involving his father, King Darius, at Marathon near Athens in 490 B.C. But before invading Greece, Ahasuerus meets with his key civic leaders, his military commanders, and the who's who in his empire to engage in a series of planning sessions and to build support for his war effort. Also during this time, we are told, in our passage, the king throws a huge party to impress these leaders. A party that occurred over a period of 180 days. Now, I don't think all these leaders were at this party for six straight months. That's a long party. Otherwise, nothing would get done. Instead, it is more likely that these leaders were rotated in and out so they could carry out their official duties. Anyway, the king is as proud as a peacock. He is strutting his stuff. And apparently, he has a lot of stuff to strut, as we are told beginning in verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen and on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. At the end of the 180 days, 
Ahasuerus throws another party. A seven-day party. Seven days. And it's at this party that the king brings everybody together. Both great and small from his palace. And apparently, the venue, the party venue, was a sight to see. There were colorful linens of fine cloth hanging from marble columns. The pavement in the garden court was made from precious stones, other shiny things, and marble. There were couches of gold and silver. Those have got to be some hard couches. And the wine was served in various kinds of golden goblets. And of course, it was the very best of wine. By the king's command, everyone was allowed to drink without compulsion or without limit. Usually at Persian feasts, guests would only drink as the king drank. But here, the people of Susa were told to drink as much as they wanted. It was an open bar for the men. And while all this was going on, Queen Vashti was hosting a separate party in the royal house just for the women by themselves, which would have been normal in that day and custom. So there are two parties going on. And then the king does something that changes everything. Let's read beginning with verse 10. On the seventh day, that's the last day of the party, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mihuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass. Let me get a breath. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess. For she was beautiful. On the last day of the party, Ahasuerus who is now drunk as a skunk. That's what it means to be married with wine. He is drunk, with a, drunk as a skunk. Wants to show off his beautiful wife to the other drunks at the party. And according to Jewish tradition, this all came about from an argument amongst the men at the party as to which country had the most beautiful women. So in an effort to settle the argument, 
once and for all, the king decided to put Queen Vashti on public display with her royal crown. And he commands the seven eunuchs to go get her. So the eunuchs take off to go get her. But they come back empty-handed. For we are told in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Queen Vashti openly defies the king, which would have definitely raised some eyebrows in that day and culture. But her reason for doing so is not given to us. Maybe Vashti was too dignified and too, too modest to entertain a bunch of drunk men. Maybe, as some Bible scholars suggest, she was pregnant at the time and did not want to expose herself in that way. Or maybe, as others interpret the Hebrew language, Vashti was commanded to come to the party naked, only wearing her royal crown. Which would have been a huge scandal and would easily explain why why she defied the king's command. Whatever the case may be, Queen Vashti wanted no part of it. She wasn't going to be paraded around like a piece of meat in front of a bunch of drunk men. And so she courageously refused her drunken husband in front of his partygoers. For 187 days, Ahasuerus who reigns over the massive Persian Empire, the ruler over the known world at that time, the king who has been trying to impress everyone with his power and splendor and majesty and great wealth, in one drunken command, in one fell swoop, is publicly humiliated by the queen. The king looks bad. He's used to getting what he wants. But not this time. And he's livid. He's furious. Apparently, Ahasuerus was known for his irrational temper and his blind fits of rage. 
for example, in his upcoming military campaign against Greece. He ordered a bridge to be built over a channel of water which separates Greece from Turkey. However, upon completion of the bridge, just before he was able to use it, a storm came and completely destroyed the bridge. This angered the king so much that he ordered his officers to give the sea 300 lashes as punishment. And then he sent soldiers who threw shackles into the sea to bind it and to stab the waves with hot red pokers. You can't make this up. Then after all of that, the king had all the builders of the bridge beheaded. So this king is off his rocker in anger. He's a mean drunk. A really mean drunk. And he goes to his counselors, who were likely also drunk, to solve his little marriage problem. This is going to be good. This is an accident waiting to happen. So let's follow along, beginning with verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. Karshenah, Sethar, Admathah, Tarshish, Mares, Marshenah, and Mimulkan. Another breath, hang on. Okay. The seven princes of Persia and Meda, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princess, Mimulkan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princess and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Meda, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And there will be plenty of contempt 
and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Medo and Persian so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, edict will be, will be uh, which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Yeah, sure. Ahasuerus calls in his seven counselors, which were likely astrologers who foolishly looked to the stars for advice. Or if the truth be told, these are the guys who tell the king what he wants to hear. They know how to flatter the king. They know how to work the king. And instead of honoring the dignity and the prudence of Queen Vashti, or telling the king he was a stupid drunk and needs to sober up, the first thing they do is to exaggerate the issue. And in essence, this is what they tell the king. This is in my own words. I'm paraphrasing, okay? Vashti has done wrong. Not only to you, O king, but also to the entire Persian Empire. And when the partygoers return home and tell everyone what the queen did to you, the consequences will be disastrous for everyone else. All the wives, all of them, all the wives in the empire will disobey their husbands. And then all the other women will follow suit and rebel against the men. This will start a woman's liberation movement. And we can't have that. This will be hell on earth for the men. Life will be over as we know it. And we will have to turn in our man cards to the women. These counselors exaggerated the issue. We might say they made a mountain out of a molehill, which is what we are prone to do. And then they offer the king their great solution. Kick the queen to the curb. And find yourself a better woman. For by doing this, 
you will strike fear in all the women. They will give honor to their husbands. They won't rebel against the men. And there will be peace in every home in the empire. It's amazing what a bunch of drunks can come up with when they put their heads together. And beginning with verse 21, we are told the outcome. This word pleased the king and the princess. And the king did as Mimokan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces. To each province according to its script and to every people according to their language. That every man should be the master in his own home. And the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Well, Ahasuerus agreed to the advice of his counselors. And Vashti was removed as the queen. Then the king sent messengers throughout the empire to issue a royal decree that said, every man should be the master of his own house. Or said in another way, every man should act just like the king. What a stark contrast to the advice the Apostle Paul gave us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when he said, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for What a stark contrast. Chapter 1 of Esther is a confused and tangled mess. But I need to remind you that thus far in this story, what we are seeing is the backside of of this tapestry. Where behind the scenes, God will use the choices and the actions of a few to eventually save His people in a masterpiece of work. So how does this apply to you and me? In our own confused and tangled lives, we may question, where is God? And what is He doing? In our jumbled lives, full of knots, and loose ends 
and frayed edges, we may be wondering if God is working in our lives. The answer is, somehow, some way, believe it or not, God is weaving it all together in a tapestry of life. Ordering and organizing every detail to accomplish a masterpiece only He can create. Maybe not now, but someday, someday, it will all make sense. Maybe not now, but one day, as promised, it will all be revealed to us. So for now, on this side of heaven, we can only trust that the invisible hand of God is at work in our lives on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for stories like this. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that you are God. And that somehow, some way, you are able to weave able to weave our choices and our actions. Making your masterpiece. I admit, Lord, sometimes it appears all we see is the backside the chaos and the confusion the tangled mess and the knots sometimes it can be discouraging depressing sometimes it leaves us with questions how in the world are you in this But Father, even though we may not see, we know your hand is at work. You are present. That you are creating a masterpiece. A masterpiece that one day we will see. May you be honored and glorified this morning. Thank you for who you are. 
Thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're here this morning and would have to admit, man, my life is a tangled, jumbled mess. And I don't see God at work in my life. I've been there. Where are you, Lord? Why don't you do something? I've been there. But the truth is, He's always present, He is ever faithful. He's always working. Believe it or not, whether you see it or not, He is always at work. And we have the hope. We have the promise that one day we will see His masterpiece. And here's kind of the interesting part. What I just described to you this morning, you know, I tend to kind of focus individually in my own life. But that's also collectively for us as a body. God is weaving each of us within our own, within our lives. I'm being woven into your life. You're being woven into my life. And that may not make sense. That might even seem confusing and chaotic. Right? But God knows exactly what He is doing. And we can trust Him. We have to. We have to. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I can tell you, He's working in your life. You know how I know that? You're here. You're here. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else going on. You just need some prayer. Whatever the case may be, I just ask that you respond to Him. He loves you. Respond to Him. Yes, your life may appear chaotic, and it may appear jumbled, and it may appear tangled, it may seem knotted, but God is working. You're just focused on the back side, but there's a front side. That's our hope. This is the first uh, Sunday of the month, and uh, we are going to participate uh, in communion. I'd like to invite our servers to come on up as the elements are being being shared. You know the the bread and the and the juice 
represents the body and, and the blood that was, that was given on the cross, right? As we look at what, what happened on the cross, it was ugly, it was brutal, it was bloody, it was vicious, right? The cross is the backside of God's handiwork. The cross was the backside of God's handiwork. And the masterpiece is our salvation. The front side of God's handiwork is our salvation. You can't have the front without the back. Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples hours before he was to be betrayed, arrested, taken to a kangaroo court, falsely accused, crucified. Jesus knew this was going to happen. Nothing surprised him. He knew this was coming. And still, he thought of others. That, that, that amazes me. He thought of you. He thought of me. And he broke the bread. And he said, this bread represents my body. That'll be broken for you. And he told his disciples, eat. May we do likewise. Let me uh, close us in prayer. I want to pray for um, our offerings for this morning, but also for our fellowship afterwards. So, Father, I thank you again for drawing us together. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I, lo- I love them dearly. You love me more. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that you're in control. I admit I don't understand it. And quite frankly, sometimes I don't agree with it. But the problem is, I don't have the big picture. I don't see clearly. I see what I want to see. Thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the gifts and the offerings that are, that are brought to this church. Thank you, Lord God, for the, the generous giving. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you bless us. Lord, you give us wisdom and insight and discernment into how to use what you've blessed us with. And then, Father, for our fellowship, bless our time together. Help us to love one another. Help us to connect with one another. To enjoy what you blessed us with. Bless the food to our bodies. Bless those, Lord God, who have prepared and brought food. But bless our time with one another and our time with you. Again, I thank you for who you are. 
and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.